and welcome to the Geek and Review Podcast. I'm Jeremy Pappas, alongside, as always, a man too sweet to be sour, too nice to be mean. On the tough guy style, he's not too keen, Mr. Russell Jones. Russell. It's actually, it's tough out there for a sweet guy. <laughs> uh, today, we have a very special podcast. Joining us now is Jonathan Tweet. He is the co-designer for 13th Age, which we've talked about on the podcast a couple times before. He's also, uh, he was the lead designer for 3rd Edition D&D. He's also, uh, not to make him extremely embarrassed, multiple Origin Award winner and an Origin Award Hall of Famer. Jonathan, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Really glad to have you on the podcast. I know I've had a lot of fun playing 13th Age, and I've been sharing a lot of the tales from the table with Jeremy. Um, I actually got a chance to run my first my first 13th Age kind of playtest style game this past week. So we wanted to just start with when you're describing 13th Age to someone, uh, you know, they may have played D&D, they may have played other RPGs. How do you like to view it or describe it? So uh, I think it's a story-oriented version of a D20 fantasy game. You know, it, it's got hit points and attack rolls and owl bears and what have you, um, but it focuses more on the story that either is being told on the, on the, at the table, either focused on a character and that character's background and motivations and goals or on sort of the, the campaign as a whole. I've heard, or I, as I've read, uh, I've been doing a lot of research. As Russell said, I haven't actually played 13th Age, but I've been researching it quite a bit the last couple of days. The one thing that really stuck out to me is something that a lot of people would say is is sort of the core of D&D, or at least has been for the, the recent past, is that it is not really as combat-centric as 3rd Edition and and 3.5 and 4th Edition. That was really interesting to me, especially with the whole gridless combat system. Right. So, um, you know, it has combat uh, just like any other D20 fantasy game, right? Like you're, you're rolling D20s and, and hitting monsters and dealing damage and what have you. And there's some really interesting combat stuff in there. The escalation die mm-hmm. gives the um, player sort of a, a floating bonus that drives every combat to sort of a crescendo. So... You know, some of my less combat-centric games sort of don't have gone away from providing the, the the meat of combat, and we sure don't. I think what we do is, while it's still sort of adventure-centric, we give you much more to do on a free-form level. Like, you can draw on uh, your connections to the icons to, to get sort of a free-form advantage that really takes place on the level of the game world rather than on the, the scale of, like, your numbers or a grid or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the icons have been one of the things that I've been most excited about, you know, while I've been playing the game, because as, you know, as a DM and as a player, I'm, I tend to be very creative and I like shaping narrative in that way. I do have players around the table, some of whom are brand new to RPGs in general, that tend to struggle with the concept a bit. Um, when when you're, you know, looking at your playtest reports or listening to people Jonathan, how do you see people uh, approaching the icon mechanic and invoking their relationships with the icons? Are they having some difficulty with it? Are they kind of finding their own way? Has anything surprised you about it? So um, it, it, the icon relationships are a really new concept, and um, I'm not surprised that some people are going to struggle with it at first. It probably is one of the, the one of the most important things in the game that's really different from what's come before. Um, and, uh, and they are a free form 
resource or if your connection is uh, something that you interpret in the game rather than rather than having it listed out in some chart of what you can do with your relationship, you sort of have to make it up. So if you if you have a conflicted relationship with the Dragon Emperor because you're his bastard son, you know, everybody around the table understands that means something, but you're not going to know exactly what that means until you're in play. And so it, it can be sort of a stretch, uh, but what I like about it is that it, it draws people to try something new, like the try to make the icons interesting enough and familiar enough that um, people would be drawn to some of them and that would help them sort of accommodate themselves to sort of this new idea that their character is going to be connected to one of the um, ruling powers in the world, either, you know, heroic force for civilization or some sort of villain or something. And I like to think that I, I, if we've done our job, it's interesting enough that people will uh, struggle with it and get through it and really make it part of their character and campaign. You know, just the, the concept of icons and having it a part of your character, we get so used to, in, in D&D, all the editions from from 3rd edition on, uh, and to a lesser uh, degree in editions that went before, uh, is that everything sort of has a numerical value. Russell and I refer to, and a lot of other people refer to it as the difference between fluff and crunch. Definitely. And a lot of people think that fluff is, is almost like the flavor text on a magic card. It doesn't really Definitely. matter. And the crunch is, you know, the numbers. But it's really interesting to see such a core mechanic in a game interesting and exciting to yeah. see such a core mechanic in a game tied to something that's that's a, it requires the use of imagination and not the use of a calculator it's got to be interpreted it's got to be interpreted on the level of the the story like what of player the player characters and the npcs and and what they want and what they're doing and how they're related yeah and it can bring in some really unexpected elements to the game uh, in, in my game this past week uh, one of the players in the group uh, is kind of being hunted by the Archmage, and so he would invoke his relationship with him as, you know, his negative relationship, saying, you know, well, the Archmage has to be involved with this somehow because he's paranoid like that. Right. And I wasn't really prepared as a DM for, you know, including the Archmage in the game, and it made me kind of dance around a little bit and, and use some of that... Uh, you know, kind of dance around my toes a little bit, and I, I, I really found it enjoyable. Uh, we didn't wind up invoking him. You know, he didn't roll a six, which would have let him just say yeah. what he needed. But I wound up thinking a lot about it later as I was reviewing the session in my mind, like how can I prepare for future sessions? And, and you know, knowing that that's the way that he's taking it, it's, right. I think it's going to kind of change the tenor of the game going forward. Right. It, it's a way of um, sort of structuring or framing a story it's more like if if you go to a movie and at the beginning it's established that there's a character who's being hunted by the Archmage, well, you you can bet that that's going to come up later, right? And if, so, if it's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and a lot of times uh, role-playing campaigns sort of doesn't even manage to be a mediocre movie. Like the plot doesn't come together or whatever. Uh, you know, it can be a string of adventures, or but it doesn't. It doesn't have the. Um, I mean, a, a lot of D and D campaigns can lack that the oomph that even just a hack movie has by paying attention to what the characters are doing and how they're related. And so, what we're trying to do is provide a framework where, you know, if your player character makes up something about the Archmage, well, that's now you know that's going to be part of the story, and it it all, by giving that player the ability to roll dice to bring the archmage into the plot you know 
No, it's not just up to the game master to figure out everything that's going on. The players are going to drive some of the campaign to to bring in elements that they want to see in that campaign. You know, that to me, that to me is the real difference between because a lot of people have have said this. You know, this is not D and D, and you you want to make that clear by also, but also make clear that it's a lot like D and D, and if you enjoy D and D, you'll enjoy it. But to me, the biggest difference, and you can disagree with me, uh, obviously, yeah. is that it's it redefines the relationship between the DM and the player, and it, it kind of grays that line a little bit, yeah. which is which that, is really I, interesting. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, like. For example, if you are the only person at the table playing a dwarf, if as part of your character background, you want to redefine what dwarven culture is like, you know, that's explicitly allowed. Like you, you're the guy playing the dwarf. You should be able to play the dwarf your way. So um, I I played uh, when I was mucking around years ago um, and sort of working my way towards some of these ideas. I played in a game with Peter Atkinson. I one of the founders of Wizards and the guy who runs Gen Con, um, great D&D player from the old days. And he, he played a wizard, and, and he was able, because he was the only wizard at the table, to sort of say what wizards are like in the world. And he said, wizards can never be trusted. And normally, if you're playing a character and you make up your wizard, you can say, well, my wizard can never be trusted. But, but he had the dramatic freedom to say, in this world, Everybody knows that wizards can never be trusted, and I'm going to play a wizard in that in that framework. So, so giving some creative authority to the players really helps them create their character on on multiple levels, right? Not not only maybe am I defining my dwarf, I might be defining how dwarf clans work, so that I can create the sort of character that I want. You could even say if fourth edition gave power to the players in the way that it you know gave them a lot of very specific and solid combat maneuvers and and it really focused on that aspect of it, this could be the opposite way it gives power to the players in a narrative sense that's a really good observation, yeah, I like that kind of going back to the to the archmage example uh like I said as a dm it also forces them to kind of make sure that they're not completely on rails with their story because if they are then at the first the first junction they're going to completely get thrown off track when when the dwarf comes along and says that's not how dwarves are how would you know you don't have dwarven privilege (laughs) exactly it's It's, yeah you, you you can't you can't run the thing on rails so so when i'm running a adventure i'll i can set up a situation where it's like you guys have no way to find the villain you're looking for, right? I have not set up ahead of time, like, if they make this check, then they'll find this clue, and if they figure out what the clue means, then they'll go to that place. Like, I don't have any of that. It's just like, you guys, you're, you've come to this city looking for this guy. you got no way of knowing where he is. And then they have to go to their resources, you know, their backgrounds or their icon relationships and come up with some way. Well, hold on. I do have a way. I'm going to use my uh, connections with the Prince of Shadows to see if I can get into the rumor mill and, you know, find something out, right? The, the Game Master doesn't even have to plot out the rails. You, the, the players can invent them as they go. Just the destinations, which is which is right. really nice. In, in a way, it kind of, you know, lessens the amount of work that you have to do. Uh, going really along that... By the way, I, I, you know, you said that in passing, but, boy... Um, Game mastering is the most important and hardest part of role playing. And the easier it is to game master, especially the easier it is to handle the the basics, the more you can concentrate on 
you know, what's going to be cool about this adventure? What's interesting about this villain? What traits does this villain have that make the player sort of like him a little? Like, you know, you can you can focus on what's fun and and like not spend a whole lot of time plotting out what monster skill checks you're going to need in the next game or what have you. It's easy to make up monsters. You can do stuff on the fly. Um, you know, I, I go into adventures sort of like I did with some of my freeform games like Over the Edge or Everway, where it's like I've got some ideas and, you know, if if I need to invent a encounter on the spot with a brand new type of monster, you know, I can just do that. I need to stall for time. Oh, you know, this would be cool if they encountered something like this now. And, I, you know, I just use some of the basic stats and some um, flavor and some interesting special abilities to make the monster different and you know we i pull something out of my pocket with no notice it's really nice and that's something that i ran into this week because i didn't have a lot of time to prep for the game and i came across the do-it-yourself monster tables that you put in the book which is a really really nice resource and i liked the way how you know you, you you just give a lot of freedom for it feels like it's a very good base template that you can then maneuver how you like. Like you have four D six in damage that this large monster has to do. You can divide that up however you want to, but he's going to, he's going to dish out four D six damage over the round. So if he's got four arms, maybe each arm does one D six damage, which I really enjoy. Do you feel, you know, as, as you're kind of developing and putting 13th age forward, do you feel like as you're giving players, you know, more openness in terms of where they can go with the story would it be it would it be better in the DM's interest to, you know, just just give them more tools for that do it yourself component? Or do you plan on, you know, putting out lots of monsters or lots of effects, you know, as the game kind of go development goes forward to so that you can say, yeah, you can do it yourself. But here's a lot of other, you know, really cool ways that you can use what we're giving you. Yeah, well, you know, we've got a lot of the classic monsters in the game and and um, we, we definitely want to put some things in there that excite the game master and make them think of cool stuff that they want to do. Right. It's, it's, um, uh, you know, it's not just a toolkit, uh, because part of the fun of game mastering is looking in the book and seeing a cool monster and maybe changing the stats or what have you, but, but, you know, so we definitely have a, a lot of that, the do it yourself stuff, different game masters will use that more or less depending on, you know, their style and how much they like to prepare and how much they like the stuff we've written. What we're going to do in terms of source books, you know, that I haven't, it hasn't been planned out. Rob Hainso is really the project manager, the sort of the lead on this project. And he's the one who's been working more closely with Pelgrain. You know, I think we'll always have a mix. Like, you know, there's something cool about looking in uh, a rule book and seeing a cool magic item or a cool monster. And yeah, you could have invented that yourself, but you know, the, the game master is a player too, and, and they want to have fun and they want to sort of explore the game. And so I think it's important to have stuff that's not just, not just a toolkit here, you go make up, make up all your stuff, but like also give them stuff that's going to inspire them. And this kind of goes to a debate that we've had on previous podcasts about, uh, especially with 14th, with, sorry, 14th edition, (laughs) with, with fourth fourth edition gosh 14th edition someone out there just had a heart attack um with fourth edition and the online uh monster generator and and database as a dm i've needed even less you know to a lesser extent than i have in previous editions an actual monster manual with a list of monsters now with these do-it-yourself tables i'm the kind of dm i can just take those 
and I can go absolutely, you know, all over the place with just yeah. the vanilla template. Some yeah. other DMs may not necessarily be that way, right. but it lends itself to not necessarily needing, you know, lots and lots of, you know, Monster exactly. Manual 1, Monster Manual 2. Uh, you yourself as kind of an industry person, especially now that, you know, D&D is moving forward to their next iteration. You've got other games like yours, you know, that are that are finding their own way. How do you feel about that, um, you know, pre-made collection of monsters? Do you feel like it's got a, a special place on the bookshelf, or is it something that possibly, you know, uh, some games so, could do without? That, that's a that's a really good question, and, and what I like about Thirteenth Age is that it really ups the bar, right? Like in Third Edition, if we told you uh, what the stats were for a large scorpion, you know, we thought you should be grateful because otherwise you would have had to figure those stats out yourself. And actually, it's pretty hard, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay, it's a large vermin. Its stats are going to be, well, its strength is about this, right? Like, that's a lot of work. Right. It's got a lot so, of legs. It's more stable, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, you know, you read through a lot of magic items and a, a lot of monsters. I mean, I love third edition. I played the heck out of that edition, and I'm very proud of my work. But, you know... A lot of that stuff was, you know, we did the work for you because it is a lot of work. Now, for 13th Age, like, we're not going to tell you what hit points to use for a large scorpion, right? Like, well, are you going to fight that large scorpion at 4th level or at 8th level? You know, maybe you'll want it to have a different stats depending on where in the campaign you want that monster to show up. So now the important thing is, what is it on the page that's so cool that the reader says, wow, you know, maybe I couldn't have made that up. That is, that that inspires me, and now I want to do something cool. So it's got to be a really interesting theme for the monster or cool special abilities that let you do something, you know, new or some kind of monster that's written up to be not a combat monster but more something that you're going to um, fight as a, like a spy, a shape-shifting monster, doppelganger, or something that's going to... Something very story-specific or setting-specific. It's going to be... Yeah, that's going to be part of the story that you're going to deal with, not just by fighting, but like, okay, there's somebody impersonating somebody in this castle, and you need to figure out who it is. Right, like... So, so the bar is raised. It's not just the stats that are going to be interesting. It's got to be something else now. And the if you can do a whole monster book of really cool monsters, really cool, maybe they're great illustrations or great themes, then it's worth it. But you you can't any longer just do, well, here's the greater mummy or whatever. There was that phenomenon that we saw in third edition where uh, it was, uh, we've discussed it a couple times, the named monster phenomenon and that you knew with a lot of DMs that if he says you have an orc here and an orc here and then he describes an orc in great detail that orc one is, you know, a mook. Orc two right. is another mook, and Orc yeah. three has a name, and he has right. a he has a job for later. It, it yeah. almost it seems like you're you're getting away from that and, and making a lot more of those quote unquote named monsters, and a lot fewer of those faceless you know red shirt monsters. Well, my wife has a my yeah. wife has a favorite thing that she likes to do. She she says I I hold off on my daily powers or my you know big show stopping abilities unless I know the creature's backstory. <laughs> then I know. Then I know right. it's worth actually pulling out the big guns. Right. Um, I, I would like to say that one, one thing that's interesting uh, about 13th Age is how cerebral it moves. I mean, a, a lot of people, especially that have started playing D&D &D just in the past 15 years, only know it as a game 
married to the grid system and and not only are you getting into being able to create monsters on the fly and create all number of of game mechanics just as you move along or whatever you want to do that yeah. you're you're actually not using a grid now i've i've read and you can correct us if this is wrong but they've had 200 or so play tests around the world of 13th age what has the having so i'm sure there are games with new players in them and yeah. how's the response been to losing the grid and doing something that a lot of people would say is really radical as far as modern D&D is concerned? I, I have to say I am really surprised and really gratified by how positive the response has been. You know, Rob and I faced sort of a, uh, not a crisis, but like a tough point, right? Like we, we put all these new things into the game. We're really changing things. We're taking things off the grid. We're relying on people to be able to figure things out, even if we're not telling them exactly what to do every round, inch by inch. And, uh, you know, we, we made a lot of changes for how, you know, how much damage does a fifth level fighter do with his sword, right? Like our answer to that is very different from uh, any edition of D&D that's come before. And, uh, with so many changes, the you know the icons, the backgrounds, um, the taking things off the grid. I think you really notice it. Like that is huge, right? Um, and I I sort of worried that everybody would like half of what we did and not like the other half, and that the game would not be received well because for everybody, every gamer, there'd be someone who can't stand that it's off the grid or somebody who can't stand that there's these freeform elements or, or what have you. And instead we have just gotten a lot of really positive responses. And, and that, that really makes me feel good because Rob and I were trying to do the game that we want to play. And we're sort of hoping that, you know, we're not alone. You know, we're hoping that we're not, you know, we're not just flukes and to find that lots of people respond to that and are willing to really embrace something more fluid and what have you. It's really exciting. It's kind of interesting also because fourth, you know, moving ahead with the next iteration yeah. of D&D, yeah. D&D Next, they're trying to do something similar, but they're going the route of, you know, you want a grid, you can have a grid. You don't want a grid, you can you don't have to have a grid. You don't yeah. want critical hits, you don't have to have critical hits. You know, it's, yeah. it's very right. – they're throwing lots of things at the wall just yeah. to see if it yeah. sticks in some senses because, you know, there's there's this group of players over here that want this. Then there's this group right. of players over here that want this. Yeah. Um, what you're saying is, you know, we're we're playing the way we want to play, and it turns out that a lot of people like playing that way too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think Rob and I really have a lucky spot, right? Like, we got together and said, what is the best game that we could do together? You know, we're best friends. We've gamed together for years and years. Um, you know, he helped me with third. I helped him with fourth. I mean, it, you know, it, we needed to do something really big, I felt. And, and um, but we wanted to do something that represented who we are as designers and what we want to play. And, you know, if that's an enviable position, right? The the guys at Wizards of the Coast, they have to come up with a version of Dungeons and Dragons that's going to appeal to the most people possible. That's their they've got the brand. They've got they have a responsibility to do, you know, reach the most people with it. Um and that's and that's tough. It's it's an interesting point in the industry, I think, because Looking at it just you know as an entertainment industry, which it is, yeah, yeah. you see this in movies, you see this in video games, especially now. 
uh, that, you know, bigger studios especially, they don't want to take those chances on doing something that's maybe a little more niche or maybe, a, you know, yeah. m- maybe goes – I mean, they you saw what happened with 4th Edition, and you had yeah. a, a large portion of player base cry foul or you yeah. know, a portion, depending on which side of the debate you fall on. Sure. Um, you've got big companies out there like Wizards of the Coast – to an extent, Paizo and yep. others that have got their uh, you know, games out. Then you right. have smaller publishers that are out. You as you as an industry person publishing your game, working with Pelgrane, and, and kind of you know having a, a view across the spectrum, how do you feel the state of RPGs are just in terms of is it healthy for the industry that you have a lot of different things going on, that the, the, the base is kind of fracturing up a little bit? Or do you feel like there's enough you know, acrimony or enmity for whatever reason that uh, it just hurts the whole thing. So, you know, I agree with Ryan Dancy, who for years um, has said that the best thing for the industry would be to get the most people possible playing one game. And, uh, you know, he said that when he was the brand manager for Dungeons and Dragons and helped launch third edition. And he was behind the open gaming license because he, he, he wanted to get everyone to rally behind the D20 flag, and he really did. Like, he he revived Dungeons & Dragons. He reunified the player base. He got people back into the game, and, and it was all by focusing in on what Dungeons & Dragons was and getting everyone to sort of play the same thing. 1D20 uh, to rule them all. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, if you look at second edition, they had split their market by... They had so many game worlds, Al-Kadim, Dark Sun, Forgotten Realms, Maztica, um, you know, it just went on and on. Spelljammer. Uh, Ravenloft, yeah. Um, Mask of the Red Death. Like, so, um, and then, and again, people could, you could play anyway. You could play with weapon speeds or not. You could play with modifiers, by weapon to armor or not. You could, you know, it, it, it really was split up. And Ryan did a great thing by bringing everybody together. I mean, I, I can't disagree with him. The more people that you have playing one game, sort of the more valuable that game becomes. It's sort of like an operating system with computers or, or um, anything. Common language, basically. And any, anything where there's what he calls exter- network externalities, right? Like the, the more people that are playing the game that you want to play, the better the supplements are going to be, the better support there's going to be online, the easier it's going to be to find other players. So, you know, right now he's trying to get everyone behind um, Pathfinder. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that sort of abstractly, the, you know, the best, thing, the best thing for the industry financially would be for everyone to all gather around one game system. But, you know, this is a game that Rob and I did because, you know, it's this labor of love. It's our love letter to D&D. We, we want D&D players to have all the cool stuff that indie game players have, you know, all the character orientation and freeform abilities and player authority over narrative and all this cool stuff that's been brewing in the, especially in the indie game area. And, and you know, we, we, want, we want people to play cool campaigns and have cool characters. And I, I think the, the other thing is, if you look at 13th Age, a lot of that stuff in there can just be ported directly into any version of D&D that you want to use. You know, Pathfinder, a retro clone, 5th edition when it comes out, 4th edition, whatever. You know, you can use the Escalation die, you can use icons, you can use backgrounds. 
it's uh, easy to it's easy to mix and match if you or you know kind of big borrow and steal depending on yeah. what you want to do. Exactly. And that's really I kind of want to disagree with with the earlier points uh, for that reason because I'm the kind of person you know my my approach to RPGs in general has always been kind of the Assassin's Creed. Nothing is sacred. Everything is permitted. You know, yeah. you take you take your game at your table, that's and right. and you just bring to the table what you that's think right. and what your players want in order to play. Right. If if you pull a little from Pathfinder, if you pull right. a little from Old Spelljammer, if you pull a little from this, I mean, from that's a player's right. perspective, that's always the way that I've felt. So the the idea that you know best thing for the industry is to rally everyone around one game system, I can understand the logic behind that, but as a player, I'm not necessarily on you know I'm, I'm not necessarily right. agreeing with that. Yeah. yeah. Now, I would like to talk about publishing, uh, because you know, because publishing has radically changed over the last few years, specifically okay. for uh, 13th Age. Now, we are going to see 13th Age books in retailers, and they're also going to be available as PDFs online. When a, what about the ebook situation? Could you talk a little bit about sort of where we'll see 13th Age? Right. So, you know, once again, I've really tried to restrict myself to the design work. Um, and I'm not sure what Simon Rogers' plans are at, at Pelgrane exactly. Um, I know that if you buy the hardcover book from them, you also get a PDF. I think that's a standard um, program mm -hmm. that they have. Um, and for sure, we're going to be selling that hardback in uh, stores come the fall. Honestly, I would. I don't know whether that you can buy just the PDF or. or or just as an ebook. Well, let me ask this as a as a consumer, you know, as a gamer yourself, uh, with iPads and tablets and things, the proliferation, especially around the game table, you know, increasing with those. Uh, how do you see things moving forward? I mean, we've seen the uh, the the kind of hardback and PDF model starting to work really well. Uh, just do you think that you know that's the natural extension to go onto tablets, or do you think it's possible to do, you know, totally? Uh, ebook and PDF publishing at this point. Uh, I think it's possible to do PD PDF and ebook publishing, but the print-on-demand that technology is so good now that you you almost don't need to do that, right? Like when I started in desktop publishing with Ars Magica, Mark Reinhagen and I did you know this game on about wizards back in 1987, you know, and we desktop published on an early Macintosh. You know, printing was harder like one of the barriers to entry was if you didn't print two or three thousand units at a shot it was just not economical and so there was this minimum bar you had to be able to sell before you could sell anybody even a softback and today with the print-on-demand technology you know there's practically no minimum to how many units people there is no minimum people can just buy uh the books they want they're printed on demand there's no minimum print run so uh Ironically, right, as the digital age has come upon us and now it's really easy to read ebooks and find ebooks and publish ebooks, <clears throat> uh, paper has also become easier than ever before as a publisher. So I think we'll always have sort of a combination of those two options. Well, always. Nothing, we're not always going to have anything, but I mean, for the foreseeable future, like, I don't think print is going to go away. 
See, and mm-hmm. that's, that, that kind of flies in the face of what a lot of people are saying. And I'm not as familiar with printing on demand, but I mean, if it, if it works similar to sort of your cafe press, yeah, uh, then, you know, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. So, right. So, so Ron Edwards at, at the forge is a big proponent of, uh, indie gaming and, um, you know, game designers owning their work and, um, and he, you know, coaches people in how to, or, or the whole Forge community, I guess, coaches people in how to set up yourself as a publisher and publish things on a really small scale. Um, and so it, it's surprisingly vibrant. The, you know, they, they sell really interesting role-playing books that, um, you know, in, in limited quantities, but sufficient to, you know, make a buzz in the indie scene. It's, a, it's really fascinating and, and pretty healthy. It what, could just what, be with with ebooks and everything else. You got just different mult, you know, different points of entry. If you do yeah. an ebook publishing, you get, uh, you know, you, it's probably easier for you to do on your own. Uh, and then once you get, you know, kind of a following going, maybe a bigger publisher picks you up, that, that uh, or, or vice versa. Yeah, what's what's really hard, I think, is the other end. Like it's easier than ever before for uh, a really dedicated fan to publish something, self-publish. It's maybe harder for the big publishers to, you know, publish their big box sets or their big hardback books and and produce a large number of products that each sell uh, a large number of units. Like, it, you know, there was a big heyday at, at Wizards when, you know, third edition was the bee's knees and everybody was flocking to it and, you know, we, we sold in, in big numbers. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> now with the market split between you know, Pathfinder and fourth edition and retro clones and what have you. I think it's, it's a, it's harder than ever to have that, you know, big splashy presence. When the next iteration comes out, do you think it's possible they may not do the, you know, the big hardcover publishing that they've, you know, kind of done in the past? You know, I would be totally surprised if wizards didn't do hard, you know, hardback player's handbook or the equivalent or what have you like the, the core rule books are going to be certainly profitable. The real problem is, what do you do for your 12th supplement? Right. Mm-hmm, like, yeah. our, you know, that, and, and if you have a publishing model that is, we're going to, we're going to keep generating material, uh, you know, over and over again, you, you have to know what, you know, your 12th product has to sell well, not just your player's handbook and your dungeon master's guide. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of entertainment, you use the, you use the entertainment up, right? You watch the movie. There's only so many times you're going to want to watch that movie. But, you know, if you buy a, a fighter book and run, play a fighter, you're going to use that fighter book for a long, long time. And you don't necessarily care what the next book that comes out is. So so we're we're expecting to see 13th Age sort of in wide release this fall. I know there's not a firm date hammered That's down. Right. That's right. Uh, uh, I had two questions that I did want to hit on since we're kind of getting uh, – kind of wrapping things up. We've covered a sure. lot of ground. But dealing specifically with 13th Age, two things I wanted to ask. First – if you're a brand new player to RPGs, just yeah. in general, and yeah. you know you've got a 13th age person that's that's wanting you to play, what is the one thing that you would want to get that new player hooked on, or really say this is something that I think you would enjoy as like a first RPG experience? That's a really good question. I mean, honestly, 13th age was uh, designed sort of for players like Rob and me. Uh, you know, who are experienced and know D&D. And, um, and in, in some ways, the freeform elements in 13th Age work because people are familiar with 
the tropes of Dungeons and Dragons. People know what a Dwarf King is. They know what a Lich King is, right? They know what a Hydruid is. So we can use those icons and we don't have to even tell you what they are. You can look at Dwarf King and go, oh, Dwarf King, ah, I want to be aligned with the Dwarf King or whatever. Uh, so someone who's really new doesn't necessarily have all that background. Uh, I think that if I had to pick the thing that would make people feel most um, uh, most attached to the game, I think it might be the the one unique thing. Every character has one thing about them that makes their character unique. And it's not something that is a bonus, like I get plus four with pole arms or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a story-oriented thing, like uh, a good friend of mine uh, rolled up a new character who is the oldest elf in the world. That's his unique feature. Um, so like, what does that mean? And how is that going to come into play? That's really interesting. I'm curious. Uh, so if a, if a player can, a new player can, uh, invent a character that has something that makes their character unique and makes them feel like, well, their, their character has a life and an identity, you know, not just, you know, stats like you can get in a video game. I, I think that might be a good hook. It's also, you know, sometimes when they have an idea of a fantasy character in mind, they've either got a pre-existing fantasy character, like something from Game of Thrones or something they've seen and say, I want to play like that. And it lets them take that hook, the thing that they like most about it, and then translate it to the table without having to worry about, you know, game mechanics and, well, I need to find, you know, a half-dragon character or something like that. It's really miserable to take an enthusiastic new player who has a character concept and then try to shoehorn that concept into, like, you're going to be a first-level, third-edition character. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And, you you know, you got some leeway in what stats or feats, you know, maybe you can multi-class to get the right combination of stuff. But, you know, if, if that, that point, their head's blown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so it's really nice that the 13th age is simple and has these free form elements like your backgrounds. You invent your own skill set. You know, that that can also be a hook for um, someone who comes in with, you know, I, I want to be a torturer. That's my idea. And like, well, there's no rules for being a torturer except you've got your one unique thing if you want to use that and you've got your background so you can define however you want and so sort of we do have rules for being a torturer and the second question i had for you is your next 13th age game whether that's a new game or yep. you know your next session of your ongoing game yeah what is something that you're excited about doing in that next game either brand new right. or just something you're really looking forward to doing right. using 13th age so, so I've got a um, small group of people at Amazon that uh, I'm going to run a couple of sessions for them. You know, they're curious about the game that I'm doing. Amazon's my day job. And um, so I'm going to start these people out. They're really very lightly experienced with D&D. Um, and uh, I'm going to start their characters out next Thursday night with sort of on one of these open-ended challenges, like, all right, you know, you, you're in this city and there's this thing you're going to have to do and I'm not going to tell you how to do it. And their first experience is going to be role-playing their way through a, a free-form challenge in a world setting rather than, you know, going into the first level of the dungeon and kicking open a door and what do you know? It's giant rats, right? So I'm I'm really looking forward to doing what I did with my freeform games like Over the Edge and Everway, which is just, you know, have a wide open area for these players to explore their characters and explore their world and develop stuff. And, and you know, with those do-it-yourself monster stats, I'll be able to come up with, you know, right out of my pocket, I can pull any in- encounter that I need. Um, so, so it's that sort of freeform 
experience that I'm looking forward to. I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, and it also sounds inter- something like you can really only do with 13th Age. So that's right. That, you know, I'll tell that's you the, the point, right? Mm, that's absolutely the point. That's yeah. the I think the biggest selling point for 13th Age is that you get 13th Age, you can do things you can't do with any other system, which to me is a really big selling point. And I think it gives you freedom. It gives you, you know, the ability right. to change the story, you know, like what like I said right. earlier, kind of power to the players in that sense. So if you go back to second edition, there was a lot of talk back then about how you could role play anything and you could imagine anything and do anything. Um, and in some ways it was true. But generally what that meant was you had your character stats and that defined combat or whatever. And then you had whatever you wanted to make up about the character in the world and whatever you know spiel you could give to the king you could get whatever you could work out of it through sort of a freeform thing but there was no like, structure for that story right mm-hmm. and so people really valued you know everybody would talk about what the one session where nobody rolled the die mm-hmm. right and that what that meant was they didn't have combat they had conflicts they had social stuff going on but nobody rolled the die and and that was almost like this gold standard like oh if your campaign gets to the point where you can have a session where no one rolls a die you know, you're you're really winning, which is weird because you got all these rules with all these dice and, and numbers. <laughs> what's the what's that about? So, so 13th Age is like, yeah, you're going to roll dice, but they're not going to be combat dice. They're going to be your background dice. They're going to be your uh, relationship to the icons dice. And you're going to have your story supported by the rules instead of transcending the rules and ignoring them so that you can have your story the rules pull you into the story. So this fall, uh, when 13th Age comes out, uh, if you're listening, you should go check it out. Also, go and follow Jonathan on Twitter, so whatever he has to say, you can hear. Jonathan, g- give us our Twitter handle. So, uh, I'm, I'm Jonathan M. Tweet. I'm mostly on Google. Google Plus is the place to look for me. I am on Twitter, but Google Plus is where I'm talking about 13th Age and, and uh, my campaigns and the stuff that we're doing. Okay. Connect with Jonathan Tweet on Google+. Plus. Jonathan, thanks for uh, being with us today. We really appreciate it, and we're really looking forward to 13th Age, uh, seeing what it can do. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Again, if you're interested in the news for 13th Age, go look Jonathan up on Google+. Plus. You can also jump over to pelgrainpress.com uh, under the products. 13th Age is number one. Uh, we're going to assume for quality and not just because 13 is a numeral. It's an alphabetical order. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and link that on the podcast page. Ross, what else is going on? We're going we're gonna to let Jonathan get out of here, and we're going to talk a little bit about a movie that we both very recently saw. Yep. Uh, while my wife was down at the beach, I took some time to go watch uh, The Amazing Spider-Man in 3D, and it was, in a word, amazing. Here's the thing about Amazing Spider-Man. Because I went to see it, too, and I wasn't anticipating liking it as much as I did. Because it's really not gotten the big... It's not gotten the big push that we've seen... That we saw with Avengers. It's not getting the big push currently that we're seeing with Dark Knight Rises. Or that we're just sort of starting to see the very beginning of. I was really blown away by how good this movie is. Yeah. I've been telling everybody that I meet that they need to go... Because I've not found... I've not found one person of all of the the nerds and geeks that I've spent a lifetime surrounding myself with. I've not found one person who was really super stoked about going to see the amazing Spider-Man, which when the, uh, when Spider-Man came out before the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, when it came out, everyone was, Oh my God, we got to go see Spider-Man. But this is really, don't, don't pull (laughs) Ermager into the podcast. This one is really flown under the radar. And I went to see it very first showing on uh, Saturday. It actually launched on a, or it actually opened on a Tuesday. I went to see it very first showing on a, 
uh, on a Saturday uh, after, I'm sorry, Sunday afterward. Uh, actually, I actually want to see it on my birthday in Fayetteville. And uh, not a lot of people in the theater. And I was blown away by how damn good this movie is. I did yeah. not anticipate going in and getting, to be honest, the Spider-Man that I wished I would have gotten when I saw the original Spider-Man movie with the what I've been calling the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. I don't mean any offense to Tobey Maguire uh, by that, but that's just the best way really to describe it other than just saying Spider-Man. I was blown away by how damn good this movie is. And see, if if anything, because I've, I've experienced the same thing, because not a lot of people have been talking about it. You haven't seen the massive, you know, big press and blah, blah, blah about it. The thing is, I think that you can actually lay the blame on the previous movies just because they've been so recent and the uh, feeling from them is still kind of a bit pervasive. And now this comes along and people say, wait, they're already rebooting this franchise? Right. Why? Right. Why would they need to? It's, well, first off, you're obviously not familiar with how comics work. <laughs> right. They, they will occasionally. Like, if you think that's something. They will occasionally reboot, you know, hours after they reboot it. I mean, it's it's they reboot about as often as Microsoft uh, suggests you should reboot your machine, which is about yeah. two hundred times more than people actually do. Um, yeah. The thing about the 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 Amazing Spider-Man, I think, that makes it so good, is that as comic book fans, we know Spider-Man a certain way. We know of him. We know his backstory. I would argue he has he's easily in the top five recognizable origin stories. He's up there with Superman and Batman. We know what happens to Spider-Man. In the original Spider-Man movies, they changed things about it, and it wasn't a huge deal, but they changed things, I believe they said, to make sure that people could relate to Spider-Man as a character. They didn't want to make him uh, brilliantly smart, like the like the original comic book Peter Parker was. I mean, he was smart enough as a high school student to develop his own web shooters. They made the organic web shooters, and yeah. they kind of made him this, this you know, maybe not, not so much a nerdy character, but almost like a very normal slash losery type character. Yeah, um, he was he was the everyman that got picked on in high school. Right, when in all reality, Peter Parker has never been an everyman. He's always been brilliantly smart. Uh, yes. and, and once he kind of gets the power that matches his intelligence, he kind of became cocky. And you see that much, much, much more in The Amazing Spider-Man than you ever did in the Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man movies, which I loved because you finally have the smart-ass Spider-Man that we've been waiting for. One of the things that I think might get replayed the most, just if I'm ever, you know, oh, I, I really like this, I want to watch the clip again on YouTube, is the bit where he's going after the uh, the carjacker. The carjacker, yeah. And, just because it's so perfect. And you get a little bit of that in the trailer. They give you the, the, the line about the knife. Oh, you know, small knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The weakness. Yeah. But that is a, a that's a much longer scene, and it's it's very very well done in that sort of what I would consider the classic Spider-Man um, mythos. And this is what I've been telling people to really get them interested in the movie because I almost feel like I need to market this movie myself. <laughs> I've been telling them, listen, was your first? It was your first introduction to Spider-Man. Was it the animated series on Fox? And they'll say. Yeah, and I'll go. Then you need to go see this movie because it's essentially a live-action version of the Fox animated Spider-Man series. That, to me, outside of the comics, I kind of got into them about the same time. That's about my age group. 
Uh, so around the comics and Spider-Man, the animated series, that, I mean, that really was what started me in Spider-Man. That was that was around my age. And you, re- you really get a good Spider-Man. And the story mm-hmm. is really well done. The action is really well done. The villain is really well done. Though I will say he does uh, the, the lizard as the villain in this uh, movie. Um, he does bear a striking resemblance to the Goombas from uh, <laughs> the Super Mario Brothers movie that Russell loves. Yeah. So, because it's, I think it's mainly because he's a lizard and he doesn't really have a snout. He's a, no. it's almost like you took a lizard and you just crushed a snout down into his face. Which, well, it's like you have this idea of what a lizard folk looks like, which is kind of a bit of a, a T Rexy, you know, right? A, type a, of a kind of a miniature personal snake like. Very, a little more snake like, yeah. I would say he's kind of a cross between a snake and Godzilla. And Voldemort. And uh, a little Voldemort, yeah. Yeah. Also, on the geeky side of things, Andrew Garfield nailed that aspect of Peter Parker. That whole, you know, gangly, awkward, uh, but still, you know, confident in his brilliance in, in, in the sense that, you know, when he starts talking about stuff, he actually knows his shit. Mm-hmm. So that part of it, he did an exceedingly great job on. Also... His middle name is Russell, which instantly makes him 20% cooler. <laughs> That's scientific fact. Um, I, I will say there – I mean it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but really no movie has ever been a perfect movie. Um, the one thing about it that did kind of grate on my nerves was the awkward banter back and forth between Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy, played by the incomparable Emma Stone. Um, that to me felt like it went on way longer than it should have. It's like we get it. They're awkward teenagers – we we understand this. We're we're with you. Okay, stop doing that now. We're yeah. let's let's move on. Let's do. Okay, stop doing that now. Um, also, I think the really the the breakout as far as actors from this movie concerned will be Emma Stone because she did a fantastic job as Gwen Stacy. Yep. And Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben. God. Because not only because okay, we it's well known that we have kind of bro crush on Martin Sheen for being the president in the West Wing. But he he really nails Uncle Ben. He really nails him to a point that I mean, you know, you used to look back and you can hear the dis of the first and second uh, Spider-Man movies. You can hear the disembodied voice, you know, over as as Peter looks out over New York City. You can hear the voice, you know, Peter with great power comes great responsibility. That it, it completely removed from my brain. Uncle Ben yeah. is Martin Sheen, and he does yeah. a fantastic job. And they uh, they avoided that – I'm going to call it jingoism. They avoided that kind of jingoism by not having the, the classic movie tropes because um, it's not a spoiler to tell you that Uncle Ben dies. But he – I mean he dies. It's not something yeah. like, oh, Peter, take care of your aunt. Uh, you know, the 40s movie death that takes 10, 10, you know, 10 minutes and has an intermission. No, in it's, it. it's horrible yeah, it, and it's gut It is, man. It's, and it's just – It's terrible. Oh, it's bad. And, uh, the, I mean, and very – I will argue, also very New York. Oh, yeah. It worked really well. And um, I, I really cannot say enough. I would go as far as saying this about The Amazing Spider-Man, and people are going to disagree with me. So get your disagreeing hat on. This will be the second best superhero movie of 2012. Book it done. In terms of quality? In terms of In terms of quality and just as far as good movies are concerned. I will put this, having not seen it, I will put this over Batman uh, Dark Knight Rises. I'll say Avengers is number one, and you can't touch Avengers because I consider Avengers to be kind of a cultural 
milestone. I consider it to be the quintessential incredible superhero movie that I know has spawned a franchise that will live on for a long time. I will say it's probably, at the very least, it will be better to me. But I will say that that as it, it will not do as much business, but it will be a better movie than Dark Knight Rises. And if you miss it in the theaters, you miss, you've really missed something special. I will agree in the sense that I think, you know, the common perception amongst, you know, the geeks like us after the summer is said and done is that the Dark Knight Rises failed to meet up to the incredible, incredible amount of hype that was that mm. has been put on it mm-hmm. because there's a huge amount of hype put on it there is arguably as much if not more so than was on avengers joss whedon managed to you know pull a rabbit out of his hat with that one but i don't know if you're going to see the dark knight rises pull it off right i, I just don't know <laughs> i think that i'm going into it with an open mind but i'm feel i'm gonna bet that you are right and that the prevailing wisdom is going to be that the dark knight failed to meet high expectations and if anything the amazing spider-man is doing so well because it didn't have those expectations it had none i mean people like i said of all the people that i know and i've spent my life cultivating a geek crowd around me at all times nobody was saying man i gotta go see amazing spider-man the only people that i saw that were really saying i'm gonna go see the amazing spider-man were people with small children who who love spider-man and expected it to essentially be spider-man 4 i i i this is this is sort of my thought over dark knight rises is that when it was announced people were oh man dark knight rises is gonna be awesome best movie ever as we've learned more and more about Dark Knight Rises, I think the things that they've put out there, the things that they've shown, have not stoked the fires of that, but they've kind of let them die down. Yeah. Because the more we see about it, I think the more people start to assume they're not going to like. So we'll just have to see, I guess. We'd again like to thank our guest for today's podcast, Jonathan Tweet. Uh, again, go find him on Google Plus or connect with uh, Pelgrane Press, and they will keep you up to date on 13th Age. Go get it when it comes out this fall. Um, as always, our music is out prop featuring Esset. Check them out on uhort.no. Connect with us on Twitter as well. Um, we are at GIR Podcast. You can also shoot us an email. GIR Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Ermagerd. Oh